0: Hey everybody! Welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode, I'm your host Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. I'm joined today with Dr. Gazina Menevald for a conversation about the life of Cicero, the former Roman statesman, writer, orator who lived in the Roman Republic at a time whether people or not knew it at the time, was going through a transition from a republic to an empire. In the conversation we're going to talk more about Cicero's life, including exploring the early period of his life, his career, and some of his writings in the later stage of his life. Dr. Menevald is Professor of Latin in the Department of Greek and Latin at University College London. Her research areas include Roman drama, Roman epic, Cicero's speeches, and reception studies, especially Neo-Latin. And she's the author of many publications, including a couple monographs as examples. Cicero, which exists in the Understanding Classics series published by Bloomsbury, and Reviving Cicero in Drama from the Ancient World to the Modern Stage, also published by Bloomsbury. Welcome to the call, Gazina.
1: Thank you for this kind introduction. I look forward to our discussion.
0: Me too. All right, so a more broad question to start off. Who was Cicero?
1: That's a very good question. It, it sounds easy, but it can be tricky to answer. You've already highlighted some characteristics of him, and I'll just elaborate on that to start with. As, as you said, he lived in, in, at the end of the Roman Republic in the first century BC, and he died just at the point when the Republic was turning into the Principate. Mm. But as, as you indicated, he was involved in some of the developments that then led to the Principate. His full name was Marcus Tullius Cicero, as all Romans uh, uh, who have usually had three names. He was born in 106 BC and died in, in 43. And the Cicero is one of the most interesting and most important figures from the late Republican period. And that's not least for the reason that we know so much about him, much more than about many other figures from that period. And the reason for that, again, is that he was a prolific writer, and a lot of his writings have been preserved. He has been writing in all sorts of areas. As as Andrew mentioned, he was a politician, so we have a lot of speeches from him, given both in political contexts and also in law court settings. Then he was also a theoretical writer, so he's written various theoretical treatises, Mm. some on political philosophy directly based on his experiences, but also on moral and ethical philosophy and related matters. On top of that, he was a prolific letter writer. Uh, what is, remains are almost a thousand letters he has written to friends, family and colleagues. And there have certainly been more in the past. And that is the main reason why we feel that we know so much about Cicero, because these letters not only talk about political and official things, but they also say something about his private life. And finally, he's also tried his hand at some translations from the Greek and some poetry. Not much of the letter is left, and therefore we don't know that much about it. And sometimes people think uh, less highly of that. Although contemporaries thought that he was as good a poet as a prose writer, but from our modern perspective, he is really the main prose writer in the ancient world and a a person who has been active in the historical developments of his time, but also been active as a literary writer. So he's Hmm. of interest to both literary scholars, historians, and all sorts of people who are interested in the ancient world.
0: Yeah, when someone leaves such a footprint with literature, it certainly helps future um, generations. Uh, do we know where he was actually born, what what, what city or region?
1: Yes, we do. He was um, born in Arpinum, which nowadays is called Arpino, a little place in Ita- in Italy uh, in a well-to-do family who were sort of be- uh, belonging to the second highest social class, as they were, if I say it with modern words. And that was one reason that is quite important to understand his career. Because the Romans had this idea that if you came from a noble family and your ancestors had all been highly successful and important politicians, you had a kind of right to carry on with that tradition. But if you came from the outside and that applied to him, although his family was wealthy, his ancestors hadn't been Roman politicians, he was what the Romans called a new man, a homo novus, who was trying to get into the higher levels of politics in Rome without this backing from his ancestors and he was he was successful. He managed to do that. But I th- you get the feeling that from the start, he had a kind of inferiority complex. And he always says, "Oh, i I'm a new man. But look, I've achieved this, uh, which uh, which he felt apparently felt he needed to trumpet about because it was such hard work to get there, which he presumably managed by his education and his, his speaking ability.
0: Can you describe more what the construct or concept of Homo Novus, the new man was in Rome.
1: Um, yes, it's a, it's a term that's very frequent in the ancient sources, and there's this little bit of debate of what it exactly means, but it probably means someone who who, who can be quite wealthy and, and from a family of high social status, but a family where no one has been a consul or a similar highly ranking official before, as consul being the highest political uh, stage that you could reach in Rome, and therefore you'd You didn't have any ancestors that you could refer to, say in an election campaign, and saying, "Look, my ancestors did all these great things, and now I'm going to do the same." And you didn't have the same kind of support network uh, with the other uh, highly ranking noble families in Rome. So it was quite difficult to get into that. Uh, But a number of people have managed it. Um, So and Cicero in his speeches often talks about previous new man who achieved something and said he's feeling he's continuing that tradition and then the other thing in rome was it's a bit like in the american senate still that you need a minimum age to do certain things and um he and he he all he he emphasizes a lot that he managed to get all offices in the year in which he became eligible for them, although he was a new man. Mm -hmm. And he's really proud of having achieved that. And he claims that previous new men managed to get political positions, but not as quickly as he did. And that uh, obviously made him proud.
0: It reminds me, if you think this is a reasonable comparison to more contemporary time is a word like a gentry so not necessarily nobility but a higher higher class Mm. in society would that be reasonable
1: yeah that's reasonable not obviously quite in the sense it's probably slightly less political but in Mm. this in 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 the in the kind of uh, scheme that's behind it i I would think you could compare it that way yes
0: Mm. Uh, what was his education
1: at the beginning, I guess it was quite normal for a man of, man of his class at the time. He had a younger brother who was a year or two younger than him. And so they bo- both were educated uh, sort of, uh, first locally and then in Rome. And then uh, later on, he, he, he made a, 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 a trip through Greece and mm. Asia Mena to study with important rhetoricians and politicians. And that was a bit like what many British citizens did in the 18th century when they did the Grand Tour Mm -hmm. through the rest of Mm -hmm. Europe. So you went uh, sort of through certain countries where you knew there were well-known teachers to get the best education with them. And so the Roman education obviously first consisted of learning, reading and writing. And then as you were moving on through the sections, then you were trained to, to read Greek to, to learn about philosophy, history, law, and then you did some training in speaking and, and, and more training in law, because obviously the key ideal was to become a lawyer and politician. So you, your whole training, at least for the noble and educated classes, were designed to get you to that point.
0: Hmm. What do we know about any early influences he had in that process or any mentors?
1: know a little bit about that, not least because Cicero writes a lot about himself. So he he mentions uh, not all his teachers, obviously, and not um, basically not even his teachers, but other important people at his time that he was following and imitating. Uh, because there was one stage in a young Romans education where they were going around the forum, as it were, where everything was happening in the middle of Rome and listening to experienced people and then taking up uh, uh, their tricks and, and and expertise from them. So there were some uh, uh, other politicians, especially lawyers, that he was uh, following and taking as an example to some extent. We can't completely prove his claims, because many of of the people he mentioned as potential models of those we know much less. So if he says he sort of imitated their advice or something like that, uh, we can't uh, check whether it's actually similar what he does to them. But it's certainly plausible that he does didn't just follow the, the handbooks that you were given in school but rather modeled his practices on actual examples he saw in the forum in his time. Mm.
0: You mentioned, uh, was he a lawyer? Was he considered a lawyer? Uh,
1: Yes, uh, I think that's how we would describe it if we use modern technology, uh, modern terminology. And there wasn't a kind of profession of lawyer at the time uh, that lots of people had some expertise in law and then acted as um, barristers in, 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 in a case. But uh, if, if, you, if you assume that definition, he, he certainly was, yes.
0: Okay. Um, yeah, it sounds like back then it didn't have the same regulatory body probably or the same regulatory system that we have. In a lot of yeah, exactly, societies yeah. today um why was becoming a lawyer or a politician so important in rome
1: another very good question it's it it, it what, important in the sense for this for society obviously it was because you need a functioning uh, government and a functioning legal system to have an appropriate society so they needed people to do their work well in in the sense why it was important for individuals that again is probably comes out of the society that that was regarded as in terms of Roman ideology, Roman values, that was regarded as the most worthy job that you could do. And they, they obviously had merchants who became very rich and they admired them for that. They had actors that they admired as great stars, but sort of admired them in certain areas. But if you wanted sort of a, a socially uh, really influential and accepted position, these were the kinds of jobs you would aspire to. It wouldn't have been possible to get them if you were born say into a farmer's family but if you came from a, a somewhat higher social class this this is what you would try to get to if possible
0: mm. he wrote a lot is did he write at all about his aspirations in life
1: no not all of it no i mean in, in his letters you get a sense of his aspirations and then in some of his speeches. But in, in his treatises, for instance, it's, it's not directly all about him. And so there, there's a lot of, uh, philosoph- he gives information about philosophical schools or uh, ideas about the best structure of the state. Um, it's, it's obviously infor- informed by his personal experiences and his personal perspective, but it's, it's not all about
0: him. Yeah, and I guess what I'm getting at with that question was, because I know he wrote on different stuff, But did you get it, like, when you read through his writings, does he speak at all about what what he's aspiring to in his career?
1: It's, uh, it... I think it really depends on the genre he he talks about himself in his letters and sometimes in his speeches because he's uh, uh, using a person's character as an argument was a very accepted tactic in Rome and he also talks about his aims and ideas in the prefaces to his treatises but then when he gets to the body of the treatises it's 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 far less about him it's more about the substance of say philosophical schools or something like that
0: okay tell us more about his career
1: As I indicated, he first had the usual uh, education of a young, wealthy Roman. And then he obviously his aim was to get into law and politics. And what you usually did was that you started out as a lawyer, uh, often in less important cases and then moving to more important cases. So to get your name out and that people would know about you and then from that basis you could apply for political uh, positions and then move into politics and the same applies to cicero so he started working as a lawyer we have some speeches from him from 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 his youth and then once he and uh, and, and although some of them deal with private cases, even at that stage, there is, is often an, a political element, uh, even in the early cases, so that there would get talked about and make him known. And then as soon as it was possible, as I indicated earlier, he started to apply for political offices. And he went through the career letter of all the political offices that there were in Rome, like quaestor, Edel, praetor, and Consul, um, and, and got all of these jobs in the earliest year in which they were available to him according to the laws on minimum wages. And he reached, then reached the consulship in 63 BC. And that was his, his, the thing he was really, really proud of Mm -hmm. that he did, become consul so smoothly and so early. And he he never gets tired of talking about that. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, um, there was a bit of a backlash after his consulship because of uh, what he did towards the end when he had to deal with the Catalinarian conspiracy. So uh, a a few years after his consulship, he had to go into exile away from Rome for about 18 months. But then he was recalled to Rome and could resume his his former life as a politician. On the other hand, then in the 50s and 40s BC, there were some periods when politics in Rome was difficult. And in those periods, it was not easy for him to remain involved in in political life. And during those periods, he withdrew and wrote the treatises I have been mentioning, because he thought the second best thing that you could do for your state, if you're not able to work as a politician, is to write treatises on say political philosophy that would help your countryman in a different way. And then towards the end of his life, he had his sec his final big appearance in 44 and 43 after Julius Caesar was assassinated on the Ides of March forty four, and there was a bit of a vacuum, and there was a discussion whether Mark Antony or Octavian would take over uh, the power in the state, he gave a final series of speeches, the so called Philippics, and um, which were quite impressive and, and influential. And then, but then, unfortunately, a few months after the final Philippic, he was um, Mark Antony. Okay, uh, and uh, came to power and, uh, and uh, sort of having made an arrangement with Octavian and Cicero was killed.
0: And oh, well, we'll want to circle back uh, before we wrap up to the later part of his life. But before we uh, get there, um, did he have any strong allies, strong and uh, influential allies in his career that you think are noteworthy to mention?
1: maybe not allies, but sort of acquaintances and friends. The most important I would think is Atticus, his great friend, who was is called Atticus because he liked all things Greek and spent some time in Athens in Attica. Mm-hmm. and Attica. We, and we have this collection of letters that he wrote to his friend Atticus, which shows that and uh, they were that they, they were quite intimate and were discussing a lot of things. and that that, I think was a great support for Cicero. Then his family was important for him, his brother, his wife, and later his children, and he, about whom he talks a lot. And then in politics, I'm not so sure whether he had confirmed allies. I mean, he was working Mm. with different people at different times and relied on their support and uh, the negotiations with them. But I I wouldn't say that he had allies that went through him through the whole of his career. And that a reason for that may well have been that he was a new man and didn't have these established networks uh, to rely on.
0: What was his influence do you think in if any, in the evolution or um, maintenance, depending on uh, how you answer in the language in the Latin language?
1: Um, if you look at it right retrospectively, his influence was enormous. Because in in when people rediscovered the ancient world uh, at, at, in the Renaissance uh, at the latest, Cicero became the main model for how to write Latin. So there were uh, lots of, and that even led to lots of discussions about Ciceronianism, whether it was all right to write Latin that was not like Cicero. Some people thought it mm. was and others thought it wasn't. But he was the main basis by which Latin was taught and by which sort of correct Latin uh, was was, um, uh, uh, valued or uh, uh, assessed. If you look at Mm. the evolution of Latin in historical terms, it is true that uh, when Latin literature started in the 3rd century BC, they were writing in a style of Latin, which we now call earlier archaic Latin, which is different from the Latin style of Cicero. And then by the first century BC, when he was writing, that was developing into what we call the classical style and he he certainly had an had an important part to play in developing this classical style but he was not the only one people like caesar for instance whom we now know more as, as a politician was also important in that development but because the remain the writings of many other people of that period don't survive. Cicero has become the main model and the main influence on the development of Latin in that period. And um, that's, that's not completely untrue, but he may get a higher rating than he usually gets. But it's certainly true that he writes a very clear and developed uh, Latin following all the rules and, and stuff like that. And you wouldn't find any uh, unusual, not many unusual words or odd constructions in the kind of Latin he is writing.
0: What I've read before, and, and tell me if, if this is a um, fair uh, representation, is that the, the work that him and probably some other people at that time that you indicated, uh, we're doing around Latin was trying to create it as a, a higher language, if, if, if you will, and what may be a more noble language. And at the same time, what came with that is um, creating a demarcation of its use. So creating some confines on how the language could and could not be used.
1: Yeah, that, that's, that's fair enough. It's probably slightly st- it's too strongly worded mm. in the sense that I'm not sure to what extent they, they were trying to do this, but they essentially did it because at that time they were starting to write much more purely literary stuff and also mm, it had certain expectations on the level of style that needed to be used for some, uh, some uh, really good piece of work. And they were also, they were certainly thinking very carefully about the kind of Latin they were writing at the time, as we know from some of the comments they make. For instance, Cicero talks about the fact that when he talks about Greek philosophy, he needs to translate certain Greek terms into Latin. And at that point, the Latin language didn't have a word for certain of these terms. So he needed either to Uh, invent one or adapt an existing one. And he talks about the needs of the language and how best to use it. And Caesar as well talks about the best the best principles of using language. So they were certainly very much aware that language was something that you could use in certain ways and form in certain ways. And Varro, Cicero's contemporary was looking into etymology of Latin words. So it's fair to say that there was a big interest in language at that time, and that certainly led to a development of a sort of more clearer, more structured, more rule-based language or use of language.
0: Hmm. You mentioned earlier that he created uh, political theories. He wrote on theoretical politics and theory. Is there an example of a theory that comes to mind that would have been, that he wrote, that would have been innovative? For its time, um,
1: the 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 best example of his political theory is his work *De Republica* on the state, and it is not entirely original because it's it's informed by his reading of a Greek theory. But what is uh, what is innovative about that one, and he says that himself, and he wants this to be seen as innovative, that in contrast to the Greek authors like Plato. He isn't writing about a theoretical state, but he's writing, he's explore, explaining political theory by using the Roman state as an example and shows in what way the Roman state in parts of his history has, has fulfilled the conditions for a best possible state and he what he means is that there are different types of government so you can have a monarchy and uh, an aristocracy and a democracy and then obviously negative versions of this as well and what he says about the roman state is that it's a mixed constitution you have elements of monarchy aristocracy and democracy because you have the consuls who are in, in, in power, but just for a year, the Senate as the executive who, who sorts out certain things, and then have you have people's assemblies for votes. And in this way, uh, this uh, the, the, because the Roman state uh, represents such a constitution, it is the best, but it is still in danger. And that's the influence of his own time to, to de- de- deteriorate because some of these measures are not no longer properly in And it's not completely innovative, but it's, an, it's a very important way of thinking about the structure of the state, and it has become very influential in the form in which we find it in Cicero.
0: Hmm. You mentioned he went into exile for about a year. Um, can you say more about what that conspiracy was?
1: That was, uh, uh, in his consular year, there was an event which we call the Catalinarian conspiracy. So a guy called Catalina and some of his associates were planning uh, to to overthrow the state. Uh, That's a bit of a simplification, but that's how it was perceived, that uh, the, the measures they were planning to make changes to the Roman state... And Cicero's consul was very successful in, in 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 disbanding this conspiracy, but that involved um, on the basis of a Senate decree kill having kill, uh, to kill some of the captured conspirators because the Senate uh, decided to punish them with a death penalty for 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 their uproar but at the same time, it was justified by the Senate, but it wasn't justified by a decision in a law court. And there was a law in place at that time that you couldn't kill a Roman citizen without a a preceding court case. So Cicero thought apparently maybe this the justification by the Senate was enough. But some people who didn't like Cicero anyway, then afterwards, uh, led by the Tribune of the People, Claudius Pulca, uh, uh, issued several laws that said anyone who has ever c- killed a Roman citizen without lo- a court case uh, might be taken to court, and so on and so forth. So, And because Cicero noticed that something was brewing together against him, he then left Rome voluntarily and uh, and went to Greece for a while until he was recalled by future uh, by a later Senate decree, and that was what Roman uh, nobles always did. If there was a court case coming, it was likely that they would be found guilty. They they left Rome and went into exile, and that was it. But it's an it's an interesting situation in Cicero's case because uh, having successfully combated the Catinarian conspiracy, was one of the most successful moments in his life, in his view. But then soon afterwards, there was this backlash, which even led to him having to leave Rome.
0: Okay. Before we go back to the later part of his life, what do we know about his family life?
1: We, we, um, we, as I already mentioned we know that he had a brother and the, the and uh, the brother also had a son which uh, which uh, whom Cicero knew but more sort of uh, concerning Cicero himself he, he married as a young man a woman called Terentia, and he had two children with her a, a, a girl and, and 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 a boy and he was very close to this wife and especially to his children. And then, uh, late, uh, towards the end of his life, his daughter died in childbirth, and that was a really devastating event for Cicero. And then, at about the same time, he got divorced from his wife Terentia and married a much younger woman instead. But the second marriage wasn't very happy, and uh, his son. Was uh, when his son was a teenager, or student age, he was sent to Athens to study, and we have letters and treatises addressed to his son studying in in Athens, and his son survived his father and later became sort of a, 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 had also a political career, and there are various anecdotes about um, the son engaging with Emperor Augustus, but uh, but then I don't think the son had any any children, so the. Um, the, the family didn't really extend very much further.
0: Hmm. Why did Mark Antony? So, going back to the comment you made earlier, he was eventually killed. Why, mm. why, why did Mark Antony and Octavian want uh, to kill him?
1: Um, uh, it, it was mainly Mark Antony who wanted it. Uh, the, the reason was that, as I said, when Caesar was assassinated, uh, Mark An- uh, there were two claims to power. First by Mark Antony, because he had been consul with Caesar in that year, and as the sole surviving consul, he claimed power. And the other claim came from Octavian, who was Caesar's adopted son, and he was claiming power on that basis. And Cicero thought that Octavian was by far the lesser evil, and he argued for, uh, uh, for, for an alliance with Octavian and fighting against Antony. And that was quite successful for some time. But at some point, Octavian and Antony and a, and a third man called Lepidus formed a triumvirate. And at, at that point, things turned for Cicero. And because Mark Antony was quite powerful in that triumvirate, he managed to put through that Cicero was put on the list of those who should be killed. And Mark Antony, I think, his job—he just, was just—he um, was just annoyed at Cicero that Cicero had been fighting against him all the time, and he regarded him as a big risk to his future life or his political plans so he just wanted to get Cicero out of the way because he knew that Cicero was a a major opponent to him and Cicero had already said you can't negotiate with Antony it's best to get him killed and then Antony probably did the same to Cicero afterwards.
0: Hmm. So if you were to summarize um, the lasting influence or effects that cicero has had on future generations how would you uh, answer that
1: i already made some comments on the influence of his language that he, that was extremely influential he became the main model for learning and speaking latin from the renaissance until t- uh, to teaching latin even in the modern period In terms of the contents of his works, his philosophical and um, political treatises have had a major influence on political and philosophical thinkers, not so much because everything in them is innovative, but because they give an insight into Greek philosophy in a very accessible way, uh, firstly, because it's written in Latin and not in Greek, and because it's so clearly presented. And then his speeches also became main models for speech making. For instance, we know that British politicians who went through the standard classical education in, say, the 18th and 19th centuries, modeled their political speeches on what we know from Cicero. And the same applies to other contexts his letters initially didn't have as much an, of an impact because most of them weren't known until um, a number of them were found again by uh, by Petrarch in 1345 and they then uh, had a major impact of our understanding of Cicero as a man and also on the practice of letter writing and publishing letter collections later on and so he's he's got his his writings had a lot of impact in various ways. But because we have the letters by him, we also know a lot about Cicero the man. And this is something we usually don't know about authors from the ancient world because we just have their literature and know nothing about them. And therefore, Cicero was also uh, influential as a character, as a person from the ancient world you felt you could relate to. So in the modern period, we have a lot of literary works like poems, dramas, novels, uh, detective novels and and such things in which Cicero appears as a character. So you can't really escape Mm -hmm. him once you start interested Mm -hmm. in anything to do with the ancient world because he pops up in all sorts of areas.
0: And he has been uh, one of the figures that I know you've studied for many years and you have a tremendous amount of knowledge on. This has been very enjoyable. Thanks for coming on the show.
1: Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure.
0: The couple monographs, again, everyone that I mentioned in the prelude that Dr. Menuvald has written, uh, Cicero, the uh, under, Understanding Classic series, and also Reviving Cicero and Drama from the Ancient World to the Modern Stage. I will drop links to both those monographs in the show notes at the Ithacabound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Gazina and everyone listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey.